Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Catherine Foote, has held roles in some of the most important policy institutions in healthcare in the United Kingdom. Then recently she fell and fractured both elbows and ended up in hospital. In this conversation, she reflects on that experience and how that has informed her thinking around healthcare policy today. Here to share her story is the wonderful Catherine Foote. Catherine, I'm so pleased to be able to spend time with you, not least because you're another person from the UK and here I am sitting in Australia, craving here to hear that accent. So welcome to the show. Yes, I'm not sure what accent I do have, Moise, but thank you so much for, for having me. It's a sort of generic North London one, I think, is probably what you're getting from me today. But delighted to be here. Catherine, we were just saying before we started the conversation that you have had roles in what I would consider household names, particularly in the UK. So the King's Fund, Cancer Research UK, the Centre for Aging Better. We aren't going to talk necessarily about those, but we can't not talk about them either. So tell us a little bit about your role in healthcare from whatever point you want to start that journey. I joined the charity Cancer Research UK just around the time in in UK government policy. It was sort of peak investment in the NHS. It was the the days of Tony Blair's modernisation agenda. And it was all school, school, schools, hospitals, 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 huge investment in workforce and particularly in acute in acute services and a big focus in cancer on things like reducing waiting times. So it was a really positive, optimistic time in health policy, really a time flooded with cash and flooded with with opportunity. And, you know, demonstrable, measurable progress in survival outcomes, in reducing waiting times. But I found myself a little frustrated at Cancer Research UK to be always, if you like, lobbying on behalf of only one disease. And I was meeting patients and clinicians for whom, of course, cancer is only one part of what matters to them and what they do. And so I had a wonderful opportunity to move to the King's Fund, where I felt able to engage in health policy more broadly and talk to government and clinicians and and um, medical leaders almost on their own terms about the complex challenges that they face across all sorts of different conditions and how one needs to prioritise resources and think about and think about policy change. In that time, I became very interested in ageing, demographic change and its impact on health and social care. Noticing, for instance, that in that Blair Brown sort of white heat of modernisation phase that we went through in the NHS, in the UK that was all sort of target driven. The targets, for instance, around cancer were all purely based in terms of reducing premature mortality and increasing survival and things for the under 75 population. But this concept premature mortality, as if once you're 75 though, you know, you just die of anything, don't you? No need to measure it. Really noticing, not just within the health system, but in society more generally, how we treat and think about ourselves as we as we age, how we other um, older people became interested in, in aging and then went to help set up 
a charity called the Centre for Aging Better with lottery money all really about trying to sort of influence broader system change to support how the UK is responding to an aging population. Again, sort of broadening my focus out beyond health and into these other things, or beyond healthcare, and into these other things that are crucial to our health and well-being: employment, good work, financial security, access to learning, skills and training. And that's where I find myself in my career now. So much experience and so much time that you've had to think about this whole question of healthcare and what makes us better and what drives us to better outcomes in life generally but in health in particular so what three things did you learn in the course of your time with the king's fund and with cancer research uk and and then laterally with the with the aging work that you were doing what three things did you did you discover that you think are universal truths gosh what a question i think one thing that deeply struck me was a sense of tribalism in the system and how almost if you like the color of the of the ribbon on your lanyard determined which tribe you were on, the, the shape of your uniform, if you got to wear a uniform or if you didn't, if you were, of course, a patient or a clinician. And how, although we're all human beings striving together for a better health and care system, the roles that we play sit us in such, such sort of difficult and limiting boxes that I think restrict our ability to collaborate and work in the best possible way to ultimately what must be mutually shared ends. So I suppose one thing I noticed was was that tribalism inevitable I think in a complex set of organizations with complex different sorts of career paths and, and, and professions but also those people those leaders in the system who were trying to break down those barriers. I would say that would be one thing. I think the other would be how challenging it is for a health a health system under pressure to genuinely engage and prioritize the patient experience and the patient journey and yet how critical actually what can sometimes be dismissed as almost sort of issues of administrative process are to patient's sense of, of, of security, of well-being, of comfort. I would say that would be another. And I suppose the third, I would come back to this, this question of, of age and how actually everybody, everybody in whatever profession, we're all as ageist as each other, that this idea that we that we inevitably are, you know, afraid of aging, afraid of death, that we other, we even other our own future selves, let alone older people around us, and the kind of insidious and pervasive effects that has on what we prioritise at a system level and on how we treat people at an individual level too. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Now I want to 
put you a little bit on the spot. You're died in the wall policy person. What you're suggesting in what you're saying there is that policy is almost set to fail because it generates or accentuates the tribalism. It increases the pressure on the healthcare system, which is moving to targets and focusing on one thing, not another. Meanwhile, you've got the prejudice of society itself, which regards older people in many ways as surplus to requirements because they are no longer being productive. and They do not see themselves ever being part of the great nomads, as we call them here in Australia. Why aren't you cynical? Well, I am a bit, Moyes. I mean, up and down, surely, aren't we all? I suppose I have seen, starting my working life in policy around the kind of turn of the millennium, I have seen what has been achieved in terms of access to health services, the quality of health services in those 20 years I've been working, what what we've managed to do around cancer survival rates, around stroke, heart disease. It's phenomenal. And I think, you know, those stories I grew up with as a child about waiting lists and lying around on trolleys. Yes, of course, we're, we're dealing with a, a pandemic and, and other systemic issues in the system just right now. But I have seen great improvement and change in how, in how the health service delivers for patients and improves outcomes for people. So in that sense, of course, I'm not cynical. And while I think there's, there remains an extraordinarily frustrating tendency amongst some of the political class to constantly reinvent wheels and see, see their desire for impact on the health system in terms of sort of legislative and structural reforms, endless reorganizations and restructures. It's almost a cliche, isn't it, how kind of utterly acronym-tastic health policy has become in the UK. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but, you know, constant, constant reorganisation and disruption. While that does frustrate me, I think we have leaders in this system, in this country, absolutely with their eyes on that greater prize of services that work holistically around patients as whole people and wanting to break down those silos and break break barriers in the system. So I think perhaps, I'm not sure I have lost my cynicism at a national level, but a local and regional level, I think we're doing some fantastic work and there are some brilliant people thinking differently in the system now. To us, because there have always been good people in the system. I think back to my training in the UK as as an NHS GP, and I was trained by the best. They were extraordinarily caring. They were extraordinary. There's a lot of common sense in in those people, and that is what often saved the day and took us away from the form filling and the box ticking to actual patient care. Now I want to go to the point where we met, or at least where we engaged, and that was after your awful accident. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened to you and we can then explore that experience a little bit? 
I just tripped and fell over on the pavement about six weeks ago. Now it was. It was the uh, Platinum Jubilee weekend here in, in the UK. Very, very busy out on the streets. It was the Saturday morning and my husband and our two girls had all gone out for the day. Really just started our day out. And I fell over. I was tripped, I think, and managed somehow to land almost my entire body weight just on my elbows. Fractured them both, dislocated various bones. I mean, the list on my sort of discharge sheet was quite complicated and again, full of acronyms. But essentially I broke, I sort of smushed up all my elbows and I broke my forearms. And I'm out of my bandages now, but it's still a long road to recovery. I'm now having physio um, on a regular basis to get that mobility back. And so, yeah, in just in an instant, Initially, I thought my day had changed, my weekend had changed. Now I realise my whole summer has changed and maybe the rest of the year and maybe in small ways the rest of my life. Well, you look really well, Catherine, and I'm so pleased that that is the case. But effectively, you lost the use of your arms, but you fell into the arms of the NHS. The NHS that you have served so loyally and well for the last however long what was it like? Well, goodness. We did call an ambulance, but after around 90 minutes of me sort of variously vomiting on the pavement and sort of sitting hunched with two kids in tears and my poor husband trying to work out how to cope with looking after not just them, but me too, we did decide to give up on that weight. And I think honestly... I mean, it was over in in a minute, in 60 seconds, but honestly, one of the most painful things I've ever had to do was probably stand up and get into a taxi at that point and get myself to the hospital. A very busy A&E when I got there, but I was triaged extremely quickly and wonderfully with half an eye on all those people still waiting in the waiting room was was wished through really very quickly, for which I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. And yeah, I must have met on that first afternoon and night, 50 people ended up having, of course, x-rays put into A&E, ended up having some, some manipulation. So I tried class A hallucinogens for the first time. I had 30 minutes on ketamine. I can highly recommend it. Had the best time. So much fun. Was just floating through this sort of pink and yellow wonderland for half an hour while, while it 10 people around my bed did sort of horrible things to me without me without me knowing and woke up from that in casts to find eventually that I was recommended. We weren't, we, we'd taken a train away from home. So uh, that I was recommended to you know, stay the night and then go back home and, and queue up again in a different hospital to ultimately wait for some emergency operations, which, which came a few days later. Bewildering, you know, a bewildering experience, of course but met so many wonderfully kind, incredibly overworked people over that period. It's wonderful that you describe them as overworked, but kind, because the two things don't always resonate. What was it that they were doing that, despite the fact that they were overworked, made a difference to you in that moment? Some of them had a sense of humour. I enjoyed that very much. 
and treated me like a human being, were interested in my story. That got a bit tiresome, actually. By about the 20th time, I was telling people that I fell over in the street. Perhaps I'd had enough of people being interested in my story, but certainly early on, early on, it felt nice to be sort of, you know, treated like a human being rather than just somebody coming in and doing my obs or, or whatever. And just having those moments for me, because my mobility had just gone totally. I really couldn't do anything. Having those moments that made just all the difference when my pillow would have slumped and my back was get, would get just so sore. And just to have somebody be able to bother to listen to me saying, would you mind just quick, can you just shift it? Just, just sort of 10 centimetres left will make all the difference. And to have people able to do that was incredible. Feeding, for instance, I had a, you know, I had one of these, these red trays that meant that somebody had to stay, stay with me. I found that that's a very strange experience being sort of hand fed by somebody that's in the middle of doing a million other things. But, you know, to have somebody able to stay there and feed me was obviously just completely, completely essential to refill a glass of water, to bring that glass with a straw somewhere where I could awkwardly kind of hunch myself over to reach reach the straw with my lips but these 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 you know critical things that just give you that it just takes the edge off the kind of it does take, take the edge off the panic take the edge off the trauma take the edge off the sense that you're this sort of hopeless kind of ragbag of of patienthood stuck amongst crumple sheets but you're actually you're actually you're still you in there somewhere it makes just absolutely all the difference to your ability to yeah keep going and get through the day the health design podcast is hosted by the journal of health design an alliance with unfixed media and metal health I love the way you describe that because at no point did you describe the skill of the doctors. At no point did you talk about the complex surgery that was done. At no point did you talk about the anesthetic, although you did mention the ketamine, fair enough. But you didn't, you didn't talk about the technical side of healthcare. You talked about the attitude of the staff. You talked about their willingness to do the simple things to make you comfortable. You talked about their willingness to listen to your story and to make you feel human in a place that must have felt horrible and alien at the time. Am I reflecting back to you that experience? Absolutely. I think when you find yourself as a patient, all of that technical expertise, you just take that for granted. That's just a given. And it's not really your you know, it's not, it's, it's not your concern and it's not your immediate experience. Of course, I, I met the surgeons who drew, elbow, drew, their, um, drew their arrows, <laughs> their big purple arrows on both my arms, to which I said to one of them, do you, do you really need to do two, two arrows? I mean, here I am in two casts. It's pretty clear that you're definitely going to be doing something on both, on both arms. And he sort of murmured to himself, yes, yeah, maybe... Maybe marking is not quite so necessary on a bilateral, he said to himself, not quite getting the joke. But yes, you do take that, take that for granted. And it is actually the people you see most of the time 
as an inpatient and in A&E, and nurses and healthcare assistants. And they are the people who, at three o'clock in the morning, when I couldn't reach my call bell, were the people you're left just absolutely pathetically in the dark, sort of saying, hello, hello, to try and get somebody to help you. And, and those are those, those moments that resonate, not the meeting the surgeon for two minutes before he wishes off again and then getting wheeled into the operating theatre. Okay, so put your policy hat on and you're now back in the department and perhaps playing another role in some other aspect of healthcare. And the minister wants to know where to put his energies and his resources. Given the experience that you've just had, what would you be saying to him or her? Well, I was really struck one lunchtime when I was being fed. I noticed there was a new person I hadn't met before, that the person feeding me was a senior ward sister. And so I said to her, gosh, isn't there somebody else that could feed me? And she said, oh, not today, no. Uh, our ward has got a lot of vacancies at the moment. We don't have, uh, we don't have the healthcare assistance that we need. And I said, why? And she said, well, we've just been through COVID. And if you were being paid that, would you say? She had every sympathy for why it was so hard for people to find, find the kind of, the grit, the bravery, the, the interest, the compassion, the will to take roles like that, when actually we've got a very tight labour market in the UK and there are other, other industries paying much better salaries for other other sorts of work. So I think all sorts of issues of workforce would probably be top of my list. And and I don't just mean the you know the sort of senior clinical workforce, but absolutely I mean these kind of frontline, these frontline patient care roles. I'd also stress just quite how critically critically important good administration is and how how much I think we confuse and waste and find ourselves with great inefficiencies through a lack of some basic things around patient information and support so I managed to be able to you know I'm a I'm a sort of middle class person I've got friends who are GPs I can call my friend and ask them, having been discharged, do you know, actually coming out, I've got these questions and I don't know what I'm doing for myself. And nobody quite told me little things about my dressings, my stitches. And I just didn't quite understand what I was supposed to be doing back at home. Had these other routes to ask that question. But if I, you know, I could very easily, very easily have found myself trying to queue up at the GP, trying to get an appointment with the GP, totally pointlessly, if only people had had the time and energy to look just slightly beyond, okay, she's out now, we've got a free bed, let's get her out, let's get her out, we can get the next one in, and just make sure that I absolutely knew what I was supposed to be doing for myself uh, back at home. So I would also stress administration, information, and the, the critical importance of that sense of partnership with the patient. Hospitals can feel as a patient, I think, absolutely like a 
a lump on a conveyor belt and they couldn't wait to get rid of me the morning after surgery was the was the overarching feeling and I couldn't wait to go home either so the feeling was mutual I suppose but actually in retrospect there were questions I wish I'd asked there were things I wish I'd been given there was support and advice I wish I had there was a route back in that I didn't that didn't exist that I wish there there had been and that places a potential huge burden on a primary care system under immense pressure so just from my personal experience I think they would be some of the things I would say. I suspect that your experience not just in the UK but particularly in the US and also here in Australia is would be very similar. The healthcare system is fantastic at the Humpty Dumpty bit fixing you when you fall off the wall but the minute Humpty Dumpty goes home it's almost as if he no longer exists because the system just doesn't have the bandwidth to do what it needs to do to keep Humpty Dumpty on the wall and not actually coming crashing back down again. Where do you see the future? You've been through this, you've sat at the policy table. Where do you think we're going to be in the next five to ten years? Is this a fixable? I think so. I think... I think we are in this country under tremendous, under tremendous pressure at the moment. The, I was very conscious as an emergency patient. I've been reading in the papers, you know, routine emergency, routine operations being cancelled, being delayed. And I was thinking, oh, and here am I, I've tripped up and I'm jumping the queue. I'm getting my operations. And who, who, are, the, who are the women in their 80s, 90s? who haven't got the hip operation they were going to get because my surgeons are with me today and not with them when they were going to be with them. So there's an extraordinary amount of pressure on the system and a backlog um, to recover from. So I think it is, it is incredibly difficult. But if anything, you know, that is the burning platform, isn't it, to think differently and to find new ways to work in partnership with patients and with carers and families, so much better. So difficult, isn't it? Little things like the wait, you know, the, the visitor times that I had. I can totally see the tensions that they experience when limiting visiting hours, for instance, for patients. You don't, I'm sure, if you're running a busy ward, you don't want, oh, I don't know, a family of grandparents and kids and other things sort of knocking around all afternoon while you're busy. But at the same time, if they'd only let my husband stay for tea time, he could have fed me. <laughs> he, would have, he was perfectly happy to do it, but he wasn't allowed. And then there's somebody there who has to sit and sit, sit and do it, do it for me. So many of these small efficiencies, do they add up? Do they add up to a shift on a piece of paper you could submit to Whitehall? Probably not. Not easily. But they're nevertheless small gains that are so critically worth fighting for aren't they and I think certainly in in this country we do have a really fantastically passionate and vocal voluntary and community sector for instance working on behalf of of patients with particular conditions and sometimes organizations like National Voices in this country for instance are fantastic it will champion point of care foundation is another one 
champion these sort of basic issues of, of patient involvement, engagement, partnership, information and, and communication that could make so much difference. If perhaps we manage to have enough of those local light bulb moments amongst senior clinicians that this is worth attention, that this isn't beneath them, that this is actually critical to the sustainability and effectiveness of the system as we move through the years and decades to come. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Part of the challenge, of course, is to persuade the politicians that funding someone to support that senior sister who is feeding you or changing the policy around that so that your husband could feed you or somebody else, a grandparent, somebody could come along and assist is worth the punt when it comes to the, the elections. Saying, I'm going to do this. It's going to cost very little, but I'm going to do this. And it will make a difference because your experience would change. How do we get that message to politicians to say, it is safe to do this. It is a good idea. And it is the way Britain has always done well. It's done well because of the creativity of its people. What a good question. I, I really was struck, actually, coming out of hospital and going through this experience, really confused almost why these issues don't find their way to the doorstep. They don't find their way to politicians through voters. That that other message around, you know, let's build 40 new hospitals is the one that is the one that lands. When actually anyone that's been through, I think, any experience of acute of acute care would surely agree with me how critical these things these things are. It's fascinating, isn't it, how those, those, th th that disconnect, how those two things don't translate, how, how much, quite frankly, I think the British population forgives the NHS on that score. And that grand narrative of, well, I'm so grateful it's there at all, I'll forgive it all this mess, because at least it didn't cost me out of pocket, and, and at least it is this sort of, this institution we put up on a pedestal higher than Judy Dench, higher than Maggie Smith. It's right up at higher than, sometimes maybe even higher than the Queen. It's just right up there, isn't it? And we will forgive it almost anything because of that. And doing ourselves such a huge disservice with that pedestal, I think. And so those messages don't get don't get to politicians. Whereas if somehow those three letters NHS weren't the thing on the pedestal, but our health and our well-being was the thing on that pedestal, wouldn't things be different? And so when we were all drawing our rainbows and putting them in the windows and doing our claps on a Thursday evening out in the street at the start of the pandemic, I and some of my friends in health policy who felt this for a long time, but it, I mean, and, but it really did come to a, to a head for me emotionally with, with my accident, but we were... We were the, those annoying people who were saying to our kids, don't write NHS, you know, write, don't, don't just write NHS. Think about everybody that's helping. Think about 
how this system is working to keep us safe and the role not just of doctors and hospitals, but of bin men, of people who are still keeping our system running. It didn't quite work, actually. It didn't quite land with my six-year-old. She just wanted to draw a nice picture of a doctor and write the letter to the NHS. But, but nevertheless, I will, I think, forever campaign that we take that we take hospitals and the NHS just slightly off, slightly off that pedestal and try and encourage all of us to think more broadly about what would really make the difference. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a long road ahead to get that to land amongst elected politicians. That's a really generous reflection on your experience and not just as a policymaker but also as a patient. I want to go to the future and I want to talk now a little bit about what you are currently doing in your current role. Do you want to say something about that? I had this fantastic opportunity to essentially live out what is surely every little girl's dream to set up a think tank of my very own and I'm having a whale of a time. My experience in in healthcare policy as I said earlier led me to an interest in aging and demographic change and also led me to an interest in these wider areas of social policy that are so critical to our broader health and well-being our education, our employment, our access to basic financial security. And so a big pensions company in this country called Phoenix Group has brought me in to set up a think tank essentially looking at longer life expectancies, although, of course, in the immediately recent years and decades, life expectancy has begun to stall and is, in fact, falling for the poorest of us. But the essential premise of, of much longer life expectancies than the previous generations, this potential of an 80, 90, 100-year life, a 100-year life, more likely than not even, for my two daughters, and what that means for how we need to rethink not just the healthcare system, but our pension system, our employment system, how we think about education, training, and skills, so that we don't think about these longer lives as as the kind of fiscal apocalypse and societal crisis that it's so often portrayed as and thought about as among, um, in policy circles, but that we realise what is surely the most extraordinary gift and opportunity of public health and nutrition and medical science of previous centuries, literally more time. I mean, what could be more of a gift than that to all of us? More time to do things that matter to us, more time to spend with the people that we love. And yet we've somehow turned this gift into a, into a sort of doom-mongering disaster. And so thinking instead about more optimistically about longer lives and longer life expectancies and how we can make the most of them in ways that don't just enable those of us already lucky and already fortunate to take these opportunities, but that genuinely enable millions more of us to not just fe- not fear decades of ill health, disability, poverty in our later life, but see these longer lives and be enabled to experience these longer lives as an opportunity. So that's what I'm doing now, a combination of research and analysis, public engagement in what has essentially become my, my favourite subject. So I'm having a, a brilliant time and it was a delight after two weeks of, of, of hospitalisation and having to 
grit my teeth while my wonderful mother-in-law wiped my bottom for me to get back to work, uh, get back on the computer with brilliant voice software that means I don't have to type until I've got my mobility back and get back to it because I really enjoy it. So far in the work that you're doing, what is the direction you think that we will take into the future? Where do you see society pivoting to achieve those things that you've talked about, which is not just more life, but more productive life? Well, I hope that we will be in a situation in the future where essentially we've moved quite radically beyond what you might think of as a kind of simple three-stage model of a life where you lump all your education at the start, all your work in the middle, and all your leisure at the end into more nuanced and more flexible life courses that mean that we'd no longer rely just on the education we received as children and long adults to sustain what could be 40 or 50 year careers, that we are enabled with a very different education sector and training sector to re-educate, to re-skill, to retrain, to have two, three, four careers in our longer lives, that we're enabled to work for as long as we can and want to, that a film about Robert De Niro being an older apprentice isn't worthy of being a film anymore because loads of us are doing it. That we don't live in a world where to be elderly in the newspapers is either to be a kind of patronisingly celebrated 101-year-old skydiver on the one hand or a kind of even more patronisingly pitied disembodied pair of wrinkly hands in a photograph accompanying an article about the collapse of the social care system on the other. But the age and ageing is recognised for the diversity of human experience that it offers and that we don't just lump everybody in our national statistics over the age of 50 or over the age of 64 as some kind of enormous homogenous group when it's actually going to be one in four, one in three of us before too long. Those, I suppose, are some of the things that I hope the 21st century will bring so that we shift our way of thinking outside of what, quite frankly, at the moment are a pretty sort of mid-20th century kind of birth of the NHS mindsets about the course of a life and how it ought to run into something that genuinely reflects lives of the length that we can live now. That's extremely thoughtful and extremely refreshing. (laughs) Somebody who's gone past 50 I'm delighted (laughs) delighted that you've framed it in that way because I certainly don't feel the way that I think I should have felt looking looking back to my youth at what I thought about 50 60 70 year olds it's not how I feel I don't feel much different from those years maybe a little bit but not much different inside me still that person that says I still have much to do, much to learn. Skydiving, by the way, is not on the list. Me neither. Not not anymore. I'm a complete nervous ninny now when it comes to things like that. I think forevermore after having had this experience, after just tripping over, I'm not sure I'll ever ever take part in an extreme sport ever again. Catherine Foote, it's been a joy spending time with you this evening, my evening, your morning. Thank you so much for taking the time. A great deal of wisdom, a great deal of experience for us to reflect on. Please, let's have another conversation very soon. Thank you so much, Maureen. I've had a lovely time talking to you. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Take care. 
the Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.